Welcome to Council 4 Unplugged. This is the podcast of our Council 4 AFSCME Union in New Britain. I'm Larry Dorman. We are proud to represent 30,000 hardworking women and men throughout Connecticut in both the public and private sectors. Our guest today, we are thrilled to have him. He is none other than the Comptroller of the State of Connecticut, Mr. Kevin Lembo. Thanks, Kevin, for being here. It's good to see you, Larry. How are you doing? Great to see you. We're, We're doing well for the new year. And obviously, we're uh, legislative session starts in a month, and things are heating up at the Capitol. Wanted to just ask you kind of a simple question as we head into this legislative session. Um, give us your assessment of the state of the state. So you know, I put out that letter of the first every month on the first, so it's not written in any creative way. It's the first, um, and I talk about uh, where we are versus where the legislature and the governor had budgeted uh, we would mm-hmm. be. Um, and so right now we're showing a small budget deficit of about twenty-eight million, and it's important to remember that twenty-eight million is a lot of money to you and me, um, but twenty-eight million as a percentage of a you know nineteen billion dollar budget is actually not that much. So it doesn't call for freaking out. It calls for just keeping an eye on it, managing as you go forward, and you just have to manage uh, that difficult moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and uh, your office generates some some really fascinating studies. In reports, and I, I want to allude to one about um, released a couple weeks ago concerning um, a public interest research group report, National PRG IRG report that ranks Connecticut among the national leaders in transparency. Can you kind of explain what that means and why it's significant to residents? Sure. So um, when I first became comptroller in 2011, I was sworn in. Uh, one of the first things we did was take on transparency as a value-driven proposition, right? We need to do this because of our values as people, and also to try to create an environment where we can have an informed conversation about the challenges that face us and not the cranky uncle conversation that often happens either at dinner tables or, frankly, in the General Assembly, depending on who we're talking about. So you put the facts out there and then we can really talk about the facts. And it's been a slow and deliberate march toward open checkbook, open budget, open payroll, open pension. You can go on and be the finance chair for the day and use the revenue calculator and raise rates on this group, take rates down on that group you know, add taxes on marijuana if you think that's where we should be going and see what the net net is of those changes. So we've been recognized for that. So uh, U.S. PERG, the Public Interest Research Group, um, looks at all 50 states and we got two grades. Um, Our overall grade uh, is an A minus, which puts us tied in the top three uh, in the nation. Mm -hmm. There's actually six people who are tied for three places, but, you know, we'll move on from that. Um, And we also got a I believe, uh, for economic development uh, transparency, uh, which does make us straight up number three in the country. A third of the states got an F grade in that category. So Interesting. Connecticut continues, because of the work that we've been doing, continues to percolate up in that top you know, two or three in the nation, but the work's never done, right? It's really about always making sure that you're being as open and transparent as possible and also relying on community partners, academics, uh, just folks who have an interest in this, um, or for that matter, uh, folks in the media too, to talk with us uh, about sort of where are we? You know, how did we get here? What did we promise would happen if we did a thing? Did it play out the way you thought it would? Um, and it makes for an exciting conversation and sometimes bumpy. It does, but I appreciate it, and I'm 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 interested in this report in part. Um, certainly, there are critics out there, and I won't ask you to. Um, 
say a good thing or a bad thing about them, but there are um, groups out there constantly bemoaning um, the state of the state mm -hmm. and uh, crying about Connecticut and its poor business climate and its high taxes and things that I reject. I mean, Connecticut is a great place to live and work. And I think that um, this transparency report is actually something um, the business community and, and others um, should be celebrating. Uh, I would agree with you. Um, and I'll say two things about that. One is um, I'm continue to be amazed at how folks can continue to forward a lie uh, even in the face of facts. Facts don't matter. We just keep moving forward. Uh, there's nothing we can do about those kind of people. Uh, and the other is I spoke to, uh, at the Harvard Business Journal's sort of C-suite award shortly after the last election, and I talked about our strengths as a state and sort of where we get it right and what the challenges mm -hmm. are. And then I concluded by just saying I'm sick and tired of people, particularly in the business community or on one certain side of the aisle uh, uh, at the Capitol, uh, always talking down uh, right. the state and threatening to leave every time something doesn't go their way. So my message to that group was, if you don't want to be part of the solution, then please go. Like, go now. Stop wasting the space and the mm -hmm. oxygen and the energy it takes to keep you here and deal with you. If you want to help us get better, right. then come on, let's work together. Mm -hmm. That's a good message and a positive message. Sick and tired of that. being sick and tired? Yes, <laughs> sick and tired of being sick and tired. Uh, one thing I've been uh, excited and anxious to talk with you about, uh, you, your office uh, released a report last month, um, right before Christmas, actually, that concerned uh, a good portion of our membership, actually, and that is the uh, 2017 agreement between uh, the Malloy administration and the State Employee Bargaining Agent Coalition, mm -hmm. uh, famously known as CBAC. Uh, and you released a report showing that the savings from that agreement to date are about $1.7 billion. So if you don't mind doing a little bit of a, a dive into that report and explaining its significance. Sure. Um, you know, th this did, in fact, as you say, follow on the heels of that 2017 agreement. Um, and in the face of folks who said, I don't ever get the savings that you said, and, you know, again, talking it down because Correct. they don't have actually much to bring to the table. Yeah. Um, and so this report was put into statute and the public act was, was enacted, and so we have the responsibility to do that. And when you look at what had been estimated for savings across the two years of the first report um, and what was actually achieved, we are at $1.7 billion, with a B, in savings, which exceeds the uh, projected savings by about $128 million. So not only did we hit the mark, uh, but we exceeded it. And I'll say finally, or in addition, that there are some categories where there isn't enough data in quite yet mm -hmm. uh, to see what the savings will be. Um, and once that's in, I think uh, we're going to see even better numbers uh, as we go forward. Um, and the reason why it works, Larry, and I know you know this better than most, is because we did it together. We did it collaboratively. Yes. You know, we pushed each other, not physically, but, you know, around how to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and, but then when it came time to implement, we went forward. It's complicated stuff, right? Particularly the healthcare stuff. Right. When, when you think about, we're going to make this change and it's going to save money, um, great. But a big piece in the middle of that is how do humans behave? And you don't always get the human behavior that you think you're going to get when you put a new policy in place. And that's true in these savings as well. And so uh, when I hear critics, um, either before we started the changes or even now today, say, you know, oh, well, yeah, it's all just a bunch of hooey and, you know, mm -hmm. um, 
it's clear to me that a they're they're lazy um, because they're not taking the time to actually look at the evidence in front of them, uh, and b they clearly have no knowledge experience in running complex you know systems, and so. Um, being the budget nerd that I am, yeah. I have very little uh, patience uh, for right. folks like that. Right. Well, I, clearly, it, and for us, it, it is what we would call win-win bargaining. Right. Uh, both sides um, achieve significant uh, gains or savings, however you want to term it. Um, that agreement not only um, protected jobs, but um, I, I, I'd ask you to kind of maybe break down that, 1.7 billion because it sounds awfully abstract, but it's very real and it came in the form, quite frankly, of, of our union members and we represent 15,000 state employees among our 30,000 members who made significant, accepted significant changes to health care and, and pension agreements. So I don't know if you right. can kind of maybe give our listeners a little glimpse into where those savings came from, but I appreciate it if you would. Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, you're right. Some of those uh, savings um, were achieved through, we'll call it the blunt instrument, and this was negotiated and agreed yes, to. absolutely. But those included wage freezes and furlough days and things that are easy in quotes, to get savings uh, on, uh, but really hard for individuals to bear, depending on their individual uh, circumstances. And then there's a whole swath of uh, healthcare uh, items in there. And it's everything from emergency room avoidance, right? How do we get resources to people to understand where an urgent care center is versus an emergency room? How do we disincentivize them in some way to run to the ER for a cold when, you know, with a little planning, they might have been able to see their primary care provider for right. that? Right. Um, you know, what drugs are are in the market and are they the most efficient and highly valued drug to treat every single, you know, disease that's covered under the plan? Uh, the reality is the newest bazooka of an intervention um, is not very often the one that most people need. It's the workhorse drug that's been out there for a long time, and mm-hmm. then you graduate up. You don't start with the big guns and then you know try to figure out if you can make it, uh, make it better. Trying to incentivize uh, providers to do better, right? How do we highlight primary care providers and specialists in hospitals who are actually doing good work by our members, are, are efficient and are high quality, uh, but aren't the most expensive. Um, because we have a whole bunch of those in the plan that we need to let people know that they're there. Um, another issue is calling the, the smart shopper, you know, calling and you know, talking with the nurse and saying, look, my doctor just said I need, for example, a knee replacement. Um, here's the doctor, here's where he or she operates. That nurse on the phone can tell you quality levels and you know where you might want to consider a second opinion. And we incentivize people financially to actually get that second opinion at a different provider in some cases or have the procedure done in a different place. And it rewards them for mm-hmm. making a change, right. but it also benefits the plan exponentially more than we're paying out uh, to, to those members. Two other things I would say is, you know, we've been marching toward being uh, a bigger player in the healthcare space for a long time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this CBAC agreement has armed me uh, in that battle with trying to drive up quality and not continue to just pay for the same things over and over again, expecting a different result. So that's exciting. Um, And another big change that happened affected our retirees. Right? So our retirees who are Medicare eligible went over to Medicare Advantage. And I thought there might be a lot of screaming and yelling about that. And you know, there were some folks who, who weren't little. happy about it. Yeah, a little. But now 
that everyone's settled in, and mm-hmm. I don't want to overgeneralize because there's always someone listening who's not happy about the, the change. Um, most folks are happy in the new arrangement, like the added benefits that's, that have been made available to them, and they get the same benefit design that they had before the change. They didn't really lose anything by way of, of what's offered, but saved the state $319 million just by moving from A to B. Which is incredible. So talk about a win-win, win-win, win-win-win. It's a great thing. Right, over a quarter of a billion dollars. Right. I mean, and I'm grateful. You know, I hope yeah, folks I don't hear that. just the numbers. I'm really grateful yeah. for their willingness to collaborate. And, and obviously, if you, our, our message from our, our AFSME union, we're speaking with Comptroller Kevin Lembo here on Council Forum Plugged. The, the message, too, is that uh, when we talk about win-win, these are savings we're incentivizing uh, people to get better health care, to take care of themselves, to get better outcomes. Uh, and as you've just emphasized, that's translating into hundreds of millions of dollars in savings to Connecticut taxpayers. And I do have to get on the editorial high horse. Our members pay taxes, that's whether right, they work for a municipality, a board of education, the state of Connecticut, or uh, a private company. Uh, so you know, this agreement is delivering real savings to taxpayers, and at the same time, it's incentivizing people to uh, take care of themselves, to get better health care, to have secure retirements. So that strikes me as win-win. It, it, it is win-win, and you and I both can remember easily back to the 2011 agreement and when the health enhancement program was put in place. And yeah. talk about bumpy. That was like that was a rough. bumpy transition. Um, but when I look back at on back on it now, there were some moments where you just, you know, they were so entertaining because people were so worked up about like, yeah. it's like these, they're forcing me to get a colonoscopy. And I was like, yeah, no, right. you're supposed right. to like want to do this to keep your health like in check. Yes. Um, but now we get messages from, you know, spouses and partners of some of your members and some of our employees um, who say, look, you know, my husband was a knucklehead, you know, he refused to go to the doctor, but now he's going. And they found this thing and they caught it early and he's not going to die. So at the end of the day, we're running a health plan. This isn't an insurance plan, right? Exactly. This isn't me betting on low-risk patients and trying to exclude high-risk patients. It's trying to run a health plan and testing things that are uh, have already happened in other parts of the country or are new and unique to us based on our research um, and doing it together in a large-scale demonstration that this can actually work. Mm. And it upends in many ways the arguments that the insurance industry has been making for decades about right. how to drive down costs. We're pulling people closer to care, right. not pushing right. them away. And I would submit to you um, that this makes Connecticut a national model it does. for the things we've accomplished, for the good things we've accomplished, the savings and the changes in, in uh, behavior yeah. um, that we're producing. So speaking of health care, uh, one of the responsibilities and programs carried out by your office is something that uh, has been beneficial to uh, city and town employees, board of education employees, school secretaries, custodians, paraprofessionals, and I'm speaking of uh, Partnership 2.0. And I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about what that's about and how it kind of plays into the broader healthcare debate that's going on in this country. Sure. So, so the partnership builds on all the things we've just been talking about, right? It builds on all of those programs and it builds on the scale that we have. So right now I'm running a plan that covers about 250,000 lives. About 50,000 of those are in the Medicare space. The rest of them are in what we'll call the commercial market, right? They're, they're working through sort of the normal workaday healthcare system. 
But as we've added more lives, in addition to state employees, in this case, municipal folks, non-state public employers, so boards of ed, library systems, mm-hmm. you know, town halls, um, as they've come in, they've been able to take advantage of the scale that we have just for pricing purposes. Um, but in addition to that, they're actually getting a managed healthcare environment where they know that we're looking at claims and we're managing because we know we can't just push down increases next year to the municipalities like their old insurance carrier did um, and know that somebody's going to pay it. Like we really need to manage this uh, to uh, focus on the the health of the member and do it in an effective and efficient and cost-effective way. Um, So the partnership um, has at this point about 50,000 lives or so in it. It's on its way to 80. There's a lot of inquiry right now. Uh, One of the a couple of the positive things that have happened is in the old iteration of the partnership plan, you either took the state employee benefit design or not. Those were your two Those options. Those were the choices, right. And that was out of reach for many municipalities. Uh, and so folks just didn't come in. Um, and now we have sort of geographic uh, rate setting. We're, we're working on multiple benefit designs. So there should be a place for every one of those municipal groups to plug in at a price point and at a coverage level that really makes sense for them. And it allows the local bargaining units to continue to negotiate around cost share, for example. And so that, I think that's a benefit, right? The, I do. How yeah. the municipality decides, okay, we're going to pay 80, you're going to pay 20, we're going to pay 75, you're going to pay 25, whatever the breakdown is, that, that's an opportunity for at the local level for the bargaining units and management to to negotiate around that so that they're only they're not only left with just like salary like let's say it's a MERS town right where there's a the MERS of retirement benefit and partnership if we codified both of those every single savings that had to be accomplished would always happen on the back of salary right. and that's really right. not the way the dynamic is supposed to play out right and you you hit the number correctly, and it's pretty impressive, over 56,000 enrolled members. And I believe, I, I may be wrong, but I think there's well over uh, 100 cities, towns, boards of education. Yeah. Um, so it's it's good to see that it's growing. Growing, and some of those little ones are, you know, you, you really, when you think about, you know, an, a group of 20 employees, right? right? What leverage do they have in the market? The answer right. to that is none. They're often taken advantage of by the system. They're often taken advantage of by the brokers, you know, and so they just have to pay whatever they're told they have to pay. Right. Well, suddenly, they're part of a larger coalition, and leaning on the learnings of organized labor, we're, we're stronger when we're together. Right. And so we can demand right. uh, high-quality care. I mean, it strikes me that this is actually, again, another model for uh, how we should perhaps shape the the national debate about about healthcare too, and I'm not asking you to weigh in on that, but I, again, I think the partnership shows, like you said, what happens. You know, there is strength in numbers, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, uh, every employer should be looking at this kind of model. Right, and and no matter what happens on the national stage, there's one. <laughs> outcome that I can't think about right now, but you know, almost any other outcome beyond that is going to mean some change, I believe, in healthcare mm-hmm. in this nation. And so whether it's Medicare for all, Medicare for some, you know, public options driven on a state basis, no matter what it is, this pool we've been talking about is ready for any of those. Right? Yeah. So we're ready to plug in whatever the new national reality is. And if nothing happens at the national level, 
Connecticut will continue to innovate. Um, I was disappointed we didn't get our public option bill last year. Yes. Um, but yes. there's the— And do you want to maybe perhaps explain for our listeners, uh, and we're talking with Comptroller Kevin Lembo, uh, what the public option means and what it would have brought? Sure. So when we talked about bringing municipalities into the plan that I run. Now we're talking about bringing small businesses into the same plan, 50 and under, who really struggle uh, to, to get coverage for themselves and for their employees. And— we knew that we could cover them. They would pay the value of the benefit, um, and we would manage them like we manage everything. Uh, and it was moving along pretty well. And then in the 11th hour, um, the lobbyists for the insurance industry killed it um, because they're very powerful. Um, they are. And did. So um, there's been talk about bringing something back either this year or next. Uh, I'm on board with that. Uh, but the reality is before we do that, before we get people worked up and excited and organized, you know, to work to bring about passage, uh, we got to make sure we can actually get it done. I agree. Yeah. And uh, unless, yeah. you know, there have been some spines grown in some quarters of the Capitol or, you know, people have decided that they're going to represent their constituents and not, you know, the one lobbyist who happens to be darkening their door, right. then I think we'll be in good shape. Well, you know, it, it is something that, that needs to be discussed or at least acknowledged because, again, with the partnership, some of the resistance that we find with um, at the municipal and board of education level is that, um, and, and no disrespect to insurance brokers, but they have an incredible amount of sway. Yes. Um, over these local boards and local governments and, uh, you know, they can be the, the, the insurance industry is often the um, focus, focal point of resistance mm -hmm. to, um, to expanding uh, participation in the partnership. And we just have to recognize that and, and work around that. Yeah, I mean, and I think it, it, it's become over, it's a complicated issue, right? But I think it's become overly complicated in an effort to push people away from the conversation, right? Because then you concentrate power among a couple of people like the insurance executive, the, you know, the broker or whoever right. else, or management for that matter. Um, so, you know, it's really not that complicated, right? We're trying to provide good right. quality health care. Um, we're not underwriting people based on are they sick or not? Um, and we have to decide, are we all in this together or are we not? Mm. And So in the couple minutes we have left, I did so much going on um, at your office. Any other initiatives that you, you wanted to mention or talk about? Well, as I said, we continue to march on the transparency stuff. You know, there's yeah. always new things coming in, in that area. Um, I think you'll see in our legislative package this uh, coming year when the legislature reconvenes in, in February, uh, some tweaks, some changes in the healthcare space, not that directly impact uh, state employees, but rather sort of everyone, like right. how do we uh, rationalize this expense a little bit more? Uh, what can we do to leverage our purchasing power around pharmaceutical drugs? Um, and there, there is room for that. And I've Major issue. intentionally yeah. uh, put contract language into our new uh, uh, contract with the pharmacy benefit managers uh, that requires them to work collaboratively with us on trying yeah. to solve that, which is good and new. Um, so um, that, I think, in short, are some of the legislative items. Great. The other is, you know, we're a big state agency. You know, big by my view. We're about 300 people, a little under. And we process all the payments for the state and all the paychecks and all yes. the retirement. Our checks. AFSCME so, members work there. Many yeah. of our AFSCME members work so, there. So, I mean, it's a, it's a busy place and people doing really good work. Um, but then when you lay on top of that, you know, what does fear of what happens after 2022, for example, happen? Who's going to retire in the face of a COLA change or whatever else um, they've calculated? That's going to put real pressure on the organization to 
make sure we have enough lives to, to run the thing. Right. And so we got a plan and we have to figure out how we're going to get that new generation of workers in place. And, uh, that's exciting. Uh, and also, uh, I'm panicked on some and days. It's <laughs> something we need to talk about because with all of the, the, the negative negativity and the arguments against state government, the fact is that you need, um, an adequately staffed government to meet the needs of, of the residents and of businesses. Right. And, and everyone yeah. wants a smaller government until they have to, you know, drive an extra five miles to get right. something done or have to wait an additional yeah. 20 minutes on a line. And then, you know, government can't get anything right. Well, you right. can't starve the organization and expect it to serve you as you'd like to be served. Right. Last question, and certainly not trying to um, embarrass you in any way, shape or form, but <laughs> one of the things is you're, you're on the, in the public eye, people, um, I've heard you many times. Uh, we appreciate the efforts you're doing. Uh, a lot of folks don't know about your background. And, um, you know, many public officials don't like to talk about coming from a middle-class upbringing mm. or uh, a family where not everybody got to go to college. So I, I wanted to just tell people a little bit about Kevin Lembo because I think your upbringing and your middle-class values really inform your work as, as comptroller. Yeah, thanks, Larry. Look, I, I'm never afraid to talk about sort of where I come from yeah. uh, because you're right. It shapes who we are, and it's a lens that we look through when we're trying to figure out how do we make things better for, for other people. So, yeah, my, my mom's an OPIU uh, retiree. Uh, she went back to work when my youngest siblings went to school. Uh, before that, she was home, and my stepfather was a machinist, and he had a his small business and mm-hmm. a in the back parcel of our, our Patterson, New Jersey lot. Wow. Um, and he fabricated, you know, little pieces of widgets uh, that were needed for the textile industry and for others. And, you know, it, it was uh, an example of uh, what it takes to open a business, start a business, run a business. Right. Uh, but it also was really uh, instructive for me around how fragile uh, that whole thing is exactly. because he was injured at one point and not only did we lose our income uh, but we pretty quickly lost our health insurance and everything else um, and uh, I remember being embarrassed standing with my mother in the line at the stop uh, the shop right right uh, you know as she was pulling out what used to be the little food stamps out of the booklet and you know understanding that you know, that something's not right here. How did we get here? How do you lose coverage at the moment when you need it the most? He was injured, he was hurt, and he needed uh, health care. So uh, I guess that sort of imprinted on me pretty significantly, um, particularly the healthcare care stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, I feel like I can put my head on the pillow at the end of the day, uh, most days, uh, making things a little bit better. Um, and trying to use the education that I was ha- uh, lucky to get yeah. um, to, to try to make a difference. Well, you and your staff have, and uh, that They're was awesome. one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the program. So I think I have the best staff yeah. in state government, uh, both the, 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 the organized, represented staff, as well as uh, my management level and my yeah. executive appointees, yeah. uh, to a person, uh, brilliant in their own ways and really committed to the people of the state. Good to hear. Yeah. Good to hear. Our guest has been Comptroller Kevin Lembo. Can't thank you enough. This has been a lot of fun. We'll, Happy to do it. We'll have you back you. sometime soon. Sounds thanks. Good. As always, thanks for listening to our Council 4 Unplugged podcast. You can find us on all major social platforms by searching for Council 4 AFSME. Our website is council4.org. My name's Larry Dorman, and you've been Unplugged.